us your gifts. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos, to the book of Amos, and also if you would open your bulletins, and there's a folded sheet of white paper in there, and ask you to take out those notes. Um, As Kenneth and I were growing up, we both played sports, and our parents wanted to be involved in our lives, and we're just... We had very loving parents, and so Dad would often would often be our coach. And I, I don't know if any of you guys have experienced this, but when a parent is that involved in your activities, you often get special attention, special attention. And sometimes that's a good thing, and then sometimes that's not such a good thing. And so often when Kenneth and I, we both played baseball, we often felt like we might be getting it a little bit harder than some of the other kids were, were getting it. And so... Uh, that was often kind of difficult for us. Kenneth and I were talking about this earlier, and he told me a story that he remembered. Um, he was up to bat, and the pitcher had pitched, uh, I think, two balls that were probably hittable. And Dad walked out of the dugout and yelled in front of everyone, Can you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? Hit the ball! <laughs> and uh, so, so sometimes it was a little bit embarrassing and it was difficult and so we would have these conversations I don't want you to think my dad was harsh if you know him it was uh, loving and uh, but as we talked about it he would often say and we understood eventually that it was that our dad expected more of us because we were his children he had spent this time with us investing in us teaching us and because of that he often expected more of us. And it wasn't unreasonable expectations. It was just that he expected us to, to have drive, to, to pursue it, to try to do well. And so often he held us accountable to this. And so it often looked like he was being harder on us than he was on others. And, and now that dad didn't have the therapeutic method of parenting like that is popular today. And to be honest, I'm really thankful for that. Uh, kids, I'm glad that my dad spanked me and beat me. <laughs> Just so you know, you might be thankful for this one day. But I, I think about this as I look at the book of Amos, and I think about God's relationship with his people. You'll see if you look at the top of your notes, there's a verse there, and this is the reason that I haven't summed up the sermon in one sentence, because this verse really gets it. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God gave Israel inside knowledge to who he was, to his character, to his love, to his kindness, to everything that he would do. He gave them inside knowledge, but they rebelled against him. And for this, he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's gracious relationship with his people demanded a response of faithfulness, of obedience to him. And his people, as we will see in Amos, were rebellious and did not submit. And immediately there's an application here. If we have the opportunity, where we are geographically, where we are in church every Sunday... We have access to God's Word, and not only do we have access to His Word, but we're also sitting under the teaching of His Word Sunday after Sunday. And I would tell you that because of this, God will hold us accountable. He will hold you accountable 
Have you walked faithfully with him from the things that you've heard about who God is, the things that you've read, the things you have opportunity to partake of, mission trip opportunities even that we give you, opportunities to engage with the body in worship of the Lord. If you don't take advantage of these things, if you aren't faithful with the opportunities he gives you, God will hold you to a higher account. To a higher account. This is what he did with his people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. We're going to be in the book of Amos this morning. We're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. If you're wondering, where are we going to be next Sunday? Unless I tell you that we're doing another sermon on that particular Minor Prophet, then we're just going to be in the next Minor Prophet. Now, about six months ago, I did a sermon on Amos, basically a, a survey of Amos, and I figured everyone remembered that. And so I thought about not preaching it, but we decided to go ahead and stick with it. Katie said that everyone might not remember it. I know she wasn't talking about herself, though. Of course not. Um, So we're going to continue in Amos. Just a a little bit about how when we're walking through books like this, the prophets are often repetitive. And and I say repetitive, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. They use these rhetorical devices that were like parallelism, saying the same thing in a different way. They use poetry and things like this. And it was artistic way of conveying these things to the people. But often it is a very repetitive thing. And so if I tried to take you verse by verse of all nine chapters of Amos, you would be crying out, Lord, help us. We need to move on. You would be, I guarantee you. And so when we're taking books like this, what we're trying to do is I read through the whole thing numerous times. I've read through the nine chapters numerous times and tried to say, how can I summarize what God is trying to say to his people? And so The reason that I I, I give you these notes, I really want you to take these out because we're going we're gonna hit a lot quite a few verses. I've tried to summarize it as succinctly as possible, but we are gonna be kind of all over the place in Amos. But if you take out those notes, I tried to be as logical as possible. And so if you walk through that with me, I hope that it will be clear for you. But that's just a little bit about how you walk through how we're walking through books like this. Let me set the stage a little bit more for what's going on in Amos. Israel's in a tumultuous time in their history. It's a little, it's a while after Solomon was king. How... And so it's a while after, but Solomon brought in just an economic heyday for Israel. He made partnerships with multiple nations to where Israel is getting income from all the trade routes that other nations are using of Israel's. And so Israel has just grown. And so the people are still kind of living off of this economic heyday. But the kingdom has also been split. If you remember, if you look at the history of Israel, after Solomon, the kings came in and the northern and southern kingdom split. And so there's no longer unity among these nations, among the people of the Lord. Also, Solomon made partnerships with these other nations, which was good economically, but he also had partnerships with the gods, in a sense. And so it's brought in this pluralism and this uh, polytheism. And Israel has continued down this route. Israel has continued. And so sin is pervasive in their society, and the surrounding nations have begun to pick them apart. They've begun to take over parts of Israel on the outside. 
And so when we come to Amos, what's happening is sin is everywhere throughout their society. They ha- they're living off, off of this e- great economy that was there. But the problem is that they're oppressing other people in the process. And so there's sin everywhere in the nation. Also, the worship of these other gods has led to just a complete fake worship of Yahweh. And so, as we walk through the book of Amos, the, two ma- the main ways that, I wanna su- that we want to summarize this is the pride of Israel, the pride of Israel, and the power of God. As Amos walks through this prophecy of talking to the people, of telling them to repent, he'll intersperse all these things about who God is. You see, who God is should lead us to repentance. If he is almighty and if he's all-powerful, why would we try to go any way other than his? It's foolishness. And so it is the power of Yahweh should lead us to submit our pride to get rid of it. And so there's this contrast throughout of the pride of Israel and yet the power of Yahweh. And then the closing point, again, as it has been in every minor prophet thus far, the eschatological hope. The end time hope that God will preserve a remnant. That God will come and save his people. Now just beware. Only about 15 verses of the whole book of Amos are hopeful. Only about 15 verses. So we'll get to that. But there is much to say first. As we encountered this first point, the pride of Israel. Why do we call this pride? It was because they thought they would get away with all their sins. This is why we're calling it the pride of Israel. In Amos chapter 9 verse 10, some of the people are saying, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. They're continuing in sin, but yet they think, we can get away with this. We have a covenant with God, and so we can still sin, and it'll be okay. And so this is why we're calling it the pride of Israel, is because they thought they would get away with it. There are two main points under this pride of Israel, two main sins that the people are seeking after. And the first one of these is prosperity without justice. As we said, they're increasing, their economy is increasing, but in the process, they're oppressing those around them. So chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, again, these are in your notes. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And here are the point. Here's what the people are doing. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same woman so that my holy name is profaned. Now what's happening here? It says that they sell the needy for a pair of sandals. These may not be actual transactions where there's this guy here and they say, I'll I'll give you this guy for these sandals. That may not be what's going on. Maybe it is, but the, the thing that's really going on here is they're making these business transactions with other nations and not thinking about what's going on in the background. The, the person maybe making these sandals is a person who's daily oppressed in his work. And so Israel is aware of these things that are going on, yet they're continuing to make these business transactions and they're tra- continu- continuing to grow off the oppression of these other groups. Now know this, that God's justice, what he's getting the people of Israel for, 
His God's justice is rooted in love for others and human dignity. This is even present in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Listen to these verses. God says you must love your neighbor as yourself. You must love your neighbor as yourself. We know that Jesus repeated this, but this comes from the Old Testament. Also, Leviticus 19.34. We often think that God just hated everyone else except Israel, but this is what God says in Leviticus 19. The foreigner who resides with you must be like a native citizen among you. You must love him as yourself. God had instructed Israel in their law and everything that they were to live by that they were to consider the human dignity of others, the worth of others, and Israel had forsaken this. Also, God was particularly caring towards easily oppressed groups. If you read the Proverbs, what you see throughout is this theme that you are to take care of the widows and the orphans. You'll remember this in James. The reason James mentions that widows and orphans is because traditionally throughout all of the law, God has always said, take care of the oppressed groups, the groups that are easily neglected. Watch out for them because you'll easily not think about them and they'll easily become oppressed because they can't take care of themselves. And so God is saying, take care of these. Take care of them. Be very intentional. And Israel has completely neglected the law completely neglected what God instructed them to do. And so, these people are being oppressed, and the people in Israel are taking advantage of their oppression. They're growing off of it. So, the people became tools to be taken advantage of, rather than valued as people, and to be provided for. So, I want to to read to you a quote that speaks about prophets like Amos. And it's very practical for us. Self-analysis forces us to consider that as citizens of the richest, most technologically advanced nation on earth, we ourselves might sometimes be the prospering wicked, the false idolaters, and the oppressors of whom the Hebrew prophets spoke. You see, sometimes we can be like the people of Israel. We can make business transactions and we aren't completely aware of what's going on on the other side. Or maybe we are completely aware of what's going on on the other side, and yet we ignore it because we like the merchandise. This is a big thing, and this is difficult to think about, but sometimes we need to stretch our minds to ask, the the things that I'm wearing, the things that I'm, uh, as I'm growing economically, are other people being oppressed by that? And when you think about the many third world countries, this is a very likely thing the later the Lord will say about the people of Israel that they turn justice into poison. Justice into poison. And so, I just want to offer this thought. What happened for Israel is that the economic heyday brought in by Solomon became a road for judgment. A road to judgment. Is it possible that the same could happen to us? We grow richer and it's comfortable It's better. It feels better. But what's happening to those around us? Are we looking to those groups who are easily oppressed? Are we looking to them? Are we ignoring them? Do we remember those in need? Those groups of people who are are not are easily neglected. And when I talk about this, I I mean widows, shut-ins, orphans, foster children. Is our body, are we seeking to take care of groups like this? 
I always think about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. And you've heard me talk about this verse before, but I want to read it again. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 3, Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. Do you ever think about that? About being in prison as those other believers who are being persecuted for their faith, locked up? And those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. When I preached this sermon before, I asked you, and I'll ask you again now, do you ever fast for those who are going without food? It's hard for us to think about those who are going hungry when our stomachs are full. And so fasting is a very practical way for us to think about those who are hungry and who are needy. This is also a, a good thing to look at, is things like Voice of the Martyrs. Learning about missionaries. This is how we can avoid what happened to Israel. They weren't thinking about those on the outside. They weren't even setting it before their eyes. But as we look for these and look for things to make us aware of what's going on, we can move away from that. We can resist God's judgment. When we become so busy that we don't even notice the poor and oppressed, this is injustice. This is injustice. So I would just ask you, are you aware of people around you who are poor, oppressed, and who need to be taken care of? You. Are you helping someone? Is there someone that you're visiting on a weekly, every other week basis or something? Are there people overseas that you're helping take care of, that you're thinking about and you're praying for? These are very practical things that you can do on a daily basis. Or are you guilty? And this is the reason for God's judgment. His people are not keeping the covenant commandments. Our our faith has responsibilities and God will hold us accountable for these things. And so it's not just about money. I talked about money, but it's not just about money. It is about action. And so one way, and and I talked to you about this last time, but I want to remind you, I think this is an incredible thing. In New Orleans, there's a group called Inward, a group of ladies, and they go down to Bourbon Street, and they feed the, the ladies, the dancers, coming off their shifts on Bourbon Street, they feed them breakfast as they come off their shifts. Right after they get done with this, what we would consider maybe a despicable act, whatever it is, they feed them breakfast. They even go into these clubs, the ladies do, not the men, the ladies. The men just pray out at home, and the ladies go in, and then they, they feed them breakfast. And there have been ladies who have come out of this business, who have come to church because of this. And what way are we doing this in Baton Rouge and Prairieville? What opportunities are there? I would consider, I would encourage you, just as our people, as the church, are you thinking about ways to seek justice around you and your sphere of living? And what ways are you seeking justice? So, as we move on to their next sin, we want to be sure and see how these are connected. Their social sin was indicative of their false worship. The reason they were doing all these other things, and it was indicative of their false worship. They were going to the house of worship, and God was despising everything that they did. So B, as in your notes, religion without relationship, their second major sin. And again, the reason this is prideful is because they thought they would get away with it. 
And let me just say this. It was idolatry. What they were really doing was worshiping themselves and the things that they desired. You see, the root of all our sin is idolatry. It's not giving God his due. It's worshiping something else other than God, whether that's us or whether that's some material object. Sin is always idolatry, not giving God the worship that he deserves. And so this is what's going on in the people of Israel. They are committing idolatry, and you do too when you seek sin. You put it higher than God. So chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, we'll see where this is happening. Verses 4 through 5, God says to the people, Come to Bethel. This is a place of worship for the Israelites. And transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel. God is mocking the people because, and he's saying, you do all the worship things right, like you have it all together as far as what's supposed to be done, but your heart is evil. None of it is true worship. And so God is mocking the people. Chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. This is part of the famous thing out of Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King's speech. You'll remember a lot of this if you haven't read this before. He said, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, but, let justice roll down like waters. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is what God desires. If you're not feeling God's presence when you come into worship, could it be because you're not walking in His presence when you're outside of here? Is that the reason? Because you don't love Him every other day of the week? You see, if we don't worship Him as we walk through our every day, we won't experience Him as we come in here, as we worship together. We can't expect that. So God desired them to repent and to find his grace. Now let's look at what happened. Where did their sinful pride culminate? What, what happened with that? First, we know that judgment is coming on them and God is promising these nations who are kind of taking you over just little by little right now, eventually it'll be full and they'll take you completely over. But also, I want to, you to see this. At Amos chapter 5, verse 10. Again, Amos is coming to the people of Israel and trying to get them to repent. But they've continued in their sin. Israel has, and so this is where they end up. This is their attitude. It says, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. You see, if we continue in a path of sin, our heart will become hard towards the truth to the extent that we won't even listen to it anymore. We will hate to hear it. We'll block it out. And so for those of you who might be continuing in some path of sin, in some pride that's set in your heart, 
if you're still hearing the truth, will you repent and will you turn from your sin? There will be a day when you won't be able to turn anymore. You'll no longer hear the truth. It'll no longer even affect you. So are you going to continue in your sin? Those of you who are laughing in worship instead of listening, are you going to continue in your sin? There will come a time when there will be no more time for repentance. And it will be judgment. It will be judgment. Here we have some character traits of religion as opposed to genuine worship. I just wanted to give you some questions that might help you through this and thinking about this. Do you speak and think often of your attendance at religious gatherings instead of thinking often of just your walk with the Lord? What's your relationship with the Lord based on? Is it just here? Or is it your life? You sing and think often of God's concern for you, but not others. And I want you to get what, what I'm talking about here. Oftentimes, even our worship songs display what we re- how we really feel. We sing oftentimes about ourselves, but we don't sing about the God of the nations. The God, God that desires the nations to come and to worship Him. And so are you singing often or are you getting warm fuzzies about how God loves you but not about his love for others and his love for the nations? This is very important. It impacts how we think on a daily basis. We need to sing about the God of the nations, the God of the poor and the oppressed. You find it easy to compartmentalize your faith, making some of your life sacred and some of it secular. What that means, friends, is that you're trying to get by making some of your life God's And keeping the rest. Unfortunately, this does not work. God requires all. The last one. You're often offended by messages because they challenge your level of comfort. Or messages don't challenge you at all. You find them boring. They don't affect you. You say, I'm really not getting anything out of this. Could it be your heart, friend? This is what happened to Israel. God sent them prophets and others in the past, but the dominant culture in Israel chased them away or converted them to their own immorality. Religious people say things like, surely God doesn't want me to do that. Surely God doesn't want me to do that. Next thing, the power of God. The contrast you see here is the pride of Israel, but the power of God. And the first place I want to look at this is, is it's immediately when we look to Amos. What type of people does God use? You see, the people who would consider them the popular ones in Israel, they were the ones committing these idolatrous acts. But when we look at Amos, the man who is giving this prophecy, we see something an entirely different person, type of person. Amos chapter 1 The first verse, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. What type of guy was Amos? Was he extremely educated? Was he a priest? Was he among the popular prophets? No, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. The same verse that's in your notes there, chapter 7, verse 14 through 15. Then Amos answered, this guy Amaziah has come and told Amos to hush. Stop your prophesying. We can't handle what you're saying. And so 
Amos answered and said, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a, a dresser of sycamore figs. Do we have any of those in here? God may want to call you. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. The power of God is that he doesn't need an educated person necessarily. He can take any man, a shepherd even, and make him the one going to prophets and kings and saying, Repent. Amos delivers the message that the king of Israel is going to die. But he's a mere prophet. The power of God is that he can call anyone anyone to be his servant and he can use anyone to be his servant he wants faithful ones faithful ones so what type of people does God's God use anyone faithful ones these are the ones God uses God owns everything and judges all you see the people of Israel they're continuing in this sin they're wanting more material substance They're wanting to continue to grow, continue to be able to relax and just enjoy life the way they want to. But while they're walking in their sins, trying to get richer, God dwells on high, seeing all things, in control of all things. And it's as if Amos is asking when he mentions these things about how great God is, why would you walk in these sins when the master of the universe has chosen you and would take care of you? Why would you do this? Again, it is foolishness. Do you think you can get away with your sins? So let's look at the things Amos says about God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Again, these things are interspersed with the judgments that are coming against Israel. And it's as if Amos is just reminding them, this is who God is. Are you sure you want to continue in this? Chapter 4, verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He declares to man what is his thought. He makes the light darkness. He treads on the heights of the earth. He is the Lord. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. There is no fortress that will protect you against the Lord. He is strong and he will defeat anything you put up. Anything. Chapter 9, verse 5 through 6. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again, like the Nile of Egypt, who builds, he, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. Israel trusted in possessions, and they sought them with passion. But God owned everything. (laughs) Owned everything. Are you trusting in the Lord, friend? Are you trusting in yourself? Is there pride in you like there was in Israel? That you can achieve the things that you desire? All that you want, you can get? 
The point that Amos is making is, you should repent because God is in control of it all. It would be ridiculous to continue in what you're doing, trying to get things your own way. He is mighty. He is in control. God's power over all things should lead us to trust. It should lead us to daily repentance and turning from our sins. And ultimately, it should lead us to hope in Him. Hope in Him. So the final word here in Amos. Again, chapters 1 through 8 are pretty bad news. Actually, chapters 1 through 8, actually chapter 9, verse 8, all bad news for the people. But the final word is eschatological, end-time hope for God's people. For God's people. And I want to be very clear about the who the hope is for. Verses 9 through 15 of chapter 9. We'll read all these together. God says, For behold, actually, go back up to verse 8. I'm sorry, we'll read from verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Not utterly. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Please note that not all of Israel is going to be saved. Those who have chased after other gods, those who have become prideful, will be destroyed. What God is saying is a remnant will remain. A remnant will remain. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The hope for God's people is that God preserves a remnant. This was there in 9.8, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. You see, as we discussed in Joel last week, God says his people of Judah will dwell forever. God preserves a line so that through that line, the king will come. The king from the line of David. If God destroys the line, listen, we have no hope. Our Savior comes from that line. God preserves a line. He defeats all the enemies of His people. Look at verse 12. It says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom has been a long-held enemy of Israel. It represents the enemy of all, all the enemies of God's people. And it says God's people will possess all this enemy because God will defeat the enemies. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. All the nations who are called by my name. 
Now, up until this point, for the most part, the nation that was called by God's name was only Israel. But as we look in the Old Testament, we see hints that more is coming. And this is one of those places that there are nations, multiple nations who are called by my name. You see, God brings in all the nations. All the nations. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This is pointing to the Gentiles coming in. All the nations in Israel just refer to Gentiles because all the other nations were just enemies of God. But it refers to Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the hope that comes through Christ Jesus. And this is what Amos is pointing towards. That there will be a day when more nations will come in as God's people. And this is the day that through Christ Jesus, even us, we have come in. We are in this line. We partake of this promise made by Amos. As we look at the rest of the verses, 13 through 15. It's the same language we saw in Joel. You see, the prophets are consistent. The hope is consistent throughout all of these. It's the same language used in the book of Revelation. That creation will be, destroyed, will be restored. This is what it's saying when it says, The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. It's saying creation will produce again. It will produce well. It will produce so much that it overflows. There will be plenty for everyone. The picture is like Genesis chapter 1, when what God made was perfect and was good. Amos is pointing to the day when all creation will be restored. All creation will be restored. And this is the language of the book of Revelation when God completes the promise, the things that John saw. It is the restoration of God's good creation. It is the permanent peace of his people. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. This is when we will dwell with God forever in peace. And all our enemies, all our troubles will be gone. Isn't it incredible that a prophet who spoke thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene, is pointing to the things of the book of Revelation? Even the language is extremely similar. This is the permanent peace of God's people, all in the work and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, these promises begin to be fulfilled in the work of Christ. In the work of Christ. We are in the midst of God's kingdom coming now. It's present, it's now and not yet. We are waiting until it will be fully restored. But even now we enjoy the blessings, the fellowship of Christ, the presence of His Spirit. Do you enjoy these things? Do you participate in these blessings? I want to read one verse as we close. I'm going to ask the musicians to go ahead and make their way up. I want to read a verse to you from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, that I want to summarize all of this. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent. Has he, sa- has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Let me read that again. Has God spoken and will he not fulfill it? 
every God, every promise God has made from the beginning of this to the end. God has been in the process of fulfilling many of them. He has already fulfilled. Do you trust that God fulfills all his promises? Do you trust that? That means that on one side, he will bless those who trust in him. That means on the other side, he will judge those who don't. He fulfills both promises equally. Both equally. The contrast throughout the book of Amos is the pride of the people because of their sin, that they think they'll get away with it, yet the power of God and the hope that he brings to those who trust in him. And this is the message to you. Do you trust? Or is there areas of pride in you? Do you trust in yourself? Do you lean on yourself? God broke the people of Israel. He judged them. And he will do the same to you. And again, as we said at the beginning, for those of you who sit in here Sunday after Sunday and you hear God's word, he will hold you to a higher account. Do you trust him as father? I want to invite you this morning to make your life a life of worship. Always. Always. And so this morning as we pray, I want to ask you to repent. I know that this is what these minor prophets are about, and I know this is a lesson in endurance in a sense, hearing about all this judgment. But there's a reason that it's there. Are you repenting? Is this a consistent practice in your life? And are you experiencing the fellowship of the Lord? Let's pray together, and I just want to have a time of prayer, and then you can stand and we'll worship together for a little while. Father, we thank you for your mercies and your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, that you have granted us forgiveness of all our sins, that you have cleansed us, Father. But Lord, there are some, and even some of us believers, who let pride take over our hearts and we begin to trust in ourselves. And I just pray that those things would be broken, Father, that our lives would be laid before you, and in all that we do, that we would seek to bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, I pray that our worship would be true. And Lord, I pray that we would be mindful, Father, of how our daily actions oppress others. Lord, are we being mindful of the least of these that your son told us to be mindful of? God, I pray that we would be a people who display your love and your kindness to all peoples, especially to the least of these. God, bless this church that we would be a people who are faithful to you, known as your children by those even who are not believers, and that people would come in, that you would draw more to your name. We praise you, God, for your greatness and your salvation. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.